Happy Halloween! On this Halloween day, we thought it appropriate to look at a history of Halloween. Luckily, there has been such a history written. Lisa Morton is the author of Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. This is a fast-adapting holiday, and uh, perhaps the way you've celebrated this holiday has changed. We want to hear about that. What is your Halloween custom or tradition? You can post your picture to uh, our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Uh, your comment there as well. You can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com, and you can call us at 1-800-826-1495. Perhaps you're carving pumpkins, uh, playing pranks. You might be dressing up, uh, going door-to-door with a trick-or-treat. Cornfield mazes are popular, and uh, or perhaps you're going to a haunted house. The popularity of Halloween has spread around the globe to such places as uh, Russia, China, and Japan. But its association with death and the supernatural and its inevitable commercialization has made it to one of our most misunderstood holidays, says Lisa Morton. And uh, in her book, Trick or Treat, she provides a thorough history, beginning with uh, how holidays such as the Celtic uh, Samhain and a Gaelic Harvest Festival have blended with British Guy Fawkes Day and the Catholic All Souls Day to produce the modern Halloween. And explains how the holiday was reborn in America. Also, the impact of such events as 9-11 and the economic recession on the celebration today. We'll explore the history of Halloween and popular culture as well. Uh, Lisa Martin, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me, and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you. Uh, Lisa Martin is a screenwriter, author of nonfiction and uh, prose books, Halloween expert. Her work has been described by the American Library Association's Reader's Advisory Guide to Horror as consistently dark, unsettling, and frightening. And Famous Monsters called her one of the best writers in dark fiction today. She's the uh, multiple winner of the Bram Stoker Award and other awards. Uh, so my first question, Lisa Martin, is what, what about Halloween and, and this, this area attracts you? It's such an interesting holiday because it, it works on so many levels. I think probably the thing I like most about it is it's a very creative holiday. Um, it's a wonderful chance for people to create everything from costumes to decorations to foods to parties. And it's something that also is kind of unique, I think, in that parents can celebrate it with their children. It can become a, a way for a whole family to create something together. What, what, what will you be doing? What do you do on Halloween? I love to go out and look at all of the, um, what we call the yard haunts. We, I'm here in Southern California, and we have some fairly spectacular ones here. Um, we have people who are in the film business, and they will get together with special effects friends, and they will spend sometimes a fortune on these amazing um, decorations for Halloween. And they, these things are so elaborate that they're almost like little miniature amusement parks sometimes. They draw tens of thousands of visitors, and I just love to go and check all of those out. It's, it's interesting. You, you write that uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, solid scholarship in this area. And uh, in fact, in, in the last couple of decades, it's, it, it, it's even hard to write a book like yours because it's changing so much, the holiday is. It is. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting. There's more scholarship happening on it now. Um, but up until about 1990, there was virtually none. And I do think that's one of the reasons it's become so misunderstood. We'll get into some of the, the history. It's very it's fascinating. I, I learned a lot reading this book. Uh, and we want to we want to learn ab- about you. Um, and you're welcome to post your uh, picture, your Halloween custom. And there's some uh, there's some wonderful customs uh, around Utah. Um, if you don't mind, Lisa Martin, I'm, I'm going to just read uh, an email. I did a brief interview by email with the Headless Horseman. 
Just in the past two or three years, this is a new tradition. An anonymous person rides a black horse around the Cache Valley area, Logan area here, uh, on the Halloween. And I suspect that that person will be on their horse today. This person wants to remain anonymous, but I asked them a few questions by email. So so here we go. Uh, I asked uh, this person, how did you get started? Where did the idea come from? They said, I have a black horse, and I've always thought that it would be fun to come up with a costume so we could ride as the headless horseman. I talked about doing it for a few years, but always ran out of time to make the costume. But last year, I researched how to create the costume, was able to make it. At first, I was nervous to see how it all worked out, but it's been a great experience. Then to the question, what reactions have you gotten? I was surprised at the response we received last year. Most kids would run right up to us, and a lot of adults would take pictures. There were even some that stopped their cars in the middle of the street to get out and take pictures or yell at us to turn around so they could get a better shot. It's nice to hear that we can make Halloween fun and special for those who get to see us. And uh, third question, we'll, we'll stop here and do the rest of this later in the program. What are some of the difficulties of being the Headless Horseman? The costume takes some time to put on. I always have to pay close attention to where we ride and what's around us. And as it gets dark and more kids are out trick-or-treating, it gets more difficult to maneuver safely. My horse is very well behaved, though, and it's very aware of people who are around him, so I don't have to worry about him walking into anybody. We'll have more with the Headless Horseman a little later in the program. Lisa Martin, this I don't know if you've heard of of other headless horsemen this is a nice unique custom that sprung up here in the cash valley area that's a first and i think that's brilliant i applaud that headless horseman uh, and it would be uh, there would be some difficult uh, the person would be looking out through the through the chest <laughs> essentially right yeah. yeah and and on halloween when there are so many kids in the street and so forth i mean that's amazing that he's able to pull that off yeah it's it's been quite the quite the thing and so i hope this person continues with it and uh, i think they they will uh, today you can see a picture of the headless horseman on the utah public radio facebook page uh the headless horseman is posed with our uh, shalane uh, smith needham uh, so I wonder, maybe Lisa Martin, we could we could start at the beginning, and uh, there were mistakes even at the beginning. You you talk about a, a so-called expert who went to Ireland, came back with some misinformation, and that's uh, sort of where well, that's where your uh, your book begins. Yeah, and that's where some of the major misunderstandings about the holiday began in um, 1786. There was uh, a series of books that were published that were a collection of uh, Celtic lore, and they were by a gentleman named Charles Valency. And Mr. Valency was a British surveyor who was sent to Ireland just to survey the land and became obsessed with Celtic culture and lore and spent decades collecting all of this. And the only problem was that he basically just was wrong. (laughs) He just kind of decided that a lot of the earlier scholarship, and there already had been a lot by that time, was wrong. Um, He was very arbitrary in deciding that. And at that point, everyone knew that the um, Celtic uh, festival of Samhain was that that word meant summer's end, and it was a harvest festival for them and the end of their summer and a time when they uh, were transitioning and so forth. He decided that that did not mean summer's end, that it actually was the name of a uh, lord of death who was worshipped on that day. And even though he was completely denounced by all of his peers at the time, his books found their way onto library shelves all throughout the world and kind of formed what I think of as this strange alternate history of Halloween, which is that it somehow is diabolical and worships the Lord of Death. Hmm. Uh, and so somehow this 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 sort of idea got combined with you're saying Guy Fawkes Day, uh huh, and, and, yeah. and some other well, things. In the, 
Yeah, Guy Fawkes Day is a, a festival that's celebrated in Britain on November 5th. It commemorates a failed attempt to assassinate um, King James in 1605. And the um, one of the things that was going on in Britain at that time was they were kind of having this fight between the Catholic Church and the English Church. And by the mid-17th century, the British Parliament had banned all festivals except Guy Fawkes Day, and those festivals included Halloween. Um, So at that point, a lot of the things that had been celebrated on Halloween kind of just automatically rolled into Guy Fawkes Day, and it was celebrated with bonfires, and kids would go out and um, cover their faces in soot, and they would make these effigies of Guy Fawkes, who was the um, guy who was caught in the middle of this assassination attempt. And they would go out and put on little costumes, and they would beg money to create effigies of Guy Fawkes that they would burn with their bonfires. So that is kind of maybe one of the starts of trick-or-treat as well. And this, you write, is is unique in, in that it's a split holiday. Holidays like Christmas uh, had religious and pagan joined together, but uh, Halloween, the, the two remained split. Yeah, and there are actually, in fact, are places in Europe right now that celebrate both, and they consider them to be completely separate holidays. So you have uh, All Hallows' Eve, was it, and then, then All Saints' Day? Exactly, uh-huh. Um, it, it, so I think a lot of us don't even think of All Saints' Day. No, it's true that in um, America, especially right now, I think that there is virtually no sort of religious association with um, Halloween anymore, at least any Christian association, and it has become completely separated from that. In fact, I suspect a lot of people probably don't even know what the name Halloween means, that it does derive from the Christian um, celebration, All Saints Day, Hollow is an old word that used to mean saint, and they would start celebrating on the eve before a day, so hence we had the Hollow's Eve, um, all the saints, all hollows, and that eventually became Halloween. So how did this become, uh, originally, I'm guessing this was all a religious festival, but but somehow it became split? I, I don't know, how did that develop? Well, I, what happened, I think, there's, and there's a lot of debate over this, but I do believe that uh, the Catholic Church probably created All Saints Day to try to co-opt Salon from the Celts. Um, the Celts were, and we're speaking uh, strictly, by the way, of the Irish Celts. We have no evidence that Samhain was celebrated by any of the other Celtic tribes. And when the Catholic missionaries came into Ireland to uh, Christianize those Celts, um, they were successful, except they couldn't get, get them to give up their celebration of Samhain. And so they moved the date of All Saints Day. Originally, it was celebrated in May, and they moved it to November 1st to try and co-opt that um, celebration of Samhain. And that was only sort of partially successful. Um, I think we owe a lot of that sort of spooky character of Halloween to the celebration of Samhain, because for the Celts, it was a mystical day. It was a day when um, things could cross over from the other world into our world. Uh, They believed in malicious fairies that they called the Shi, and they thought the Shi would come over on um, Samhain Eve and do all kinds of terrible things. And uh, I think that character has kind of stayed and given Halloween that that macabre aspect. Mm. Are there, I don't know, impulses, needs that we have that have that that are a running theme throughout all of the variations of of Halloween. 
I'm thinking, especially of your the very end of your book. Let me just quote you here. The celebrations, talking about Halloween, the celebrations, playful use of frightening ideas and images seems to hold an appeal that transcends nations and eras. And that speaks to a universal need to mock and transform death and darkness, even as winter approaches. Yeah, I, I think so. I think, um, and I think it's one of the reasons the holiday lasts and keeps um, staying popular throughout all kinds of different transformations because it has changed so many times. But I think we do have that universal need to celebrate sort of the, the fearful side of things, to make fun of death, to turn it into something, um, you know, that can be dealt with in a more playful and whimsical manner. We're talking with Lisa Morton, who's written a very interesting history of Halloween. It's the subtitle. The title is Trick or Treat. And uh, a lot of things that, that I've been learning from reading this book, we'll get into some of those. Uh, Halloween has been a harvest festival. It's been a romantic night of mystery for young adults, an autumnal party for adults, begging ritual for children. That uh, the trick-or-treat is it's turned into uh, involving adults as well, and costumes. And uh, part of this is unique to America. Some of these developments were made in the New World here and then became heavily commercialized, and it spread around the world. Places you would not think that Halloween would be uh, celebrated, including in Saudi Arabia. We'll have Lisa Morton tell tell that story uh, following a break. On From the Top, we don't just put young people on the show to hear their incredible musical performances. We celebrate the whole kid. We're all members of the Vermont Astronomical Society, and uh, we've also gotten really into building telescopes. I run cross-country, and I run track. Well, I'll eat anything as long as it's not looking at me, as, and as long as it's not moving around. I believe the correct term is math stud. Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet America's most outstanding young musicians on From the Top, each week from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, repeated Sunday nights at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and area-info.net, providing a social media outlet for personalized press releases, business news, business events, and opinions. Information at area-info.net. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Happy Halloween to you. We have Halloween expert Lisa Morton with us. She is author of Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. We're asking you what you're going to be doing today. Uh, what uh, Halloween traditions or customs do you have? We'd uh, love your response on our Facebook page, Utah Public Radio Facebook page, where you can see a picture of the Headless Horseman. That's a tradition that started just last year. We'll be continuing this year. And we have more uh, coming up in our my interview with the Headless Horseman. Um, are you going to be uh, decorating your lawn or house? Or you, well, you, you have to have had that done, unless you want to work very fast. What costume are you wearing? And how has your celebration of Halloween changed? This is a fast-changing uh, hallo- uh, holiday, which is spreading around the globe. Lisa Morton is author of uh, fiction and nonfiction. She's a multiple-time winner of the Bram Stoker Award, and uh, she's with us today. Uh, before we get to back into the history of Halloween, here's more my uh, recent interview by email because the uh, Headless Horseman in the Logan area wants to remain anonymous. Uh, I asked the Headless Horseman, what are some of the pleasures of being the Headless Horseman? And they responded, "The I love the excitement that comes when people see us riding around, and my horse loves the attention, especially posing for pictures. Will we see the Headless Horseman this year? 
Well, we've been riding uh, for Downtown Ghost Tours, which just ended last weekend, and we'll be riding around the historic section of Center Street in Logan on Halloween. Are you in contact with any other headless horsemen? I've not met any other headless horsemen. It would be fun if there were more around. That would be fun. And uh, why do you do it? And the Headless Horseman responds, I love to ride. So coming up with a costume, getting to ride around and seeing the fun and excitement we can bring to everyone in the holiday makes it worth it. Let's uh, interview with the Headless Horseman. You'll see the Headless Horseman if you're in the Logan area uh, tonight. Uh, Lisa Morton, we've been talking about the history of uh, Halloween. Uh, and we talked about uh, Samhain. Uh, how would that have been celebrated? Um, we think it, what we have on Samhain is mainly sort of fairy tales. Uh, the Celts didn't write any of their history down, so we kind of have a lot of fairy tales and so forth that suggest it was um, a big party for them. Uh, they had just finished bringing the livestock in from the fields, and so they uh, had plenty of meat, and there has even been one suggestion that it might have been the only time of the year that they had alcohol. Um, some of the fairy tales and, and stories that we have suggest they celebrated it for three days. And uh, it was also an administrative time for them. It was a time when they um, collected taxes and paid debts and so forth. We're talking about the history of Halloween, and um, uh, I wanted to remind people of the phone number. So you can call one 800 826 one four nine five one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail dot com. Upraxis at gmail dot com, or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. By the way, the following people have liked our post with the headless horseman: Denise Seven, Kathy Henninger, uh, Jeanette Marshall Newmiller, Candy Carter Olson, Rachel Ann Semft, uh, Tamara Hamblin Ratita, and uh, Addison Pace. So thank you for that. Uh, another. Incarnation, you might call it, of Halloween, Lisa Morton, uh, is as a harvest festival. How is that celebrated? Um, yeah, it uh, because it is that time of fall when things like corn and apples and so forth um, have always been harvested. It it has that association as well. We see that, for example, in the decorations, um, you know, the corn husks and the stalks of corn, and of course, here in the New World, the pumpkins. Um, so it also has certain special foods that are celebrated with it, especially in Ireland. Um, I don't know that uh, any of those are specifically sort of harvest foods, but there were things, there were even a few celebrations, like there was something called a corn dolly that was occasionally around at Halloween that was a little um, figure made from corn husks. And it became, this was very interesting, this is in Britain, it became a romantic night of mystery for young adults? Yeah, it was celebrated especially um, in uh, places like Scotland. One of the best descriptions we have of an early Halloween celebration is the 1785 Robert Burns poem called Halloween. Um, most people think of Robert Burns as the guy behind Auld Lang Syne, which of course is famous for celebrating another holiday. But he also wrote our best um, Halloween poem, and it's a gigantic poem. It goes on for many stanzas, and it talks about a group of young people getting together, and they drink and they eat, and they mainly um, tell fortunes and play little fortune-telling games. And most of these games are designed to figure out who you're going to end up marrying. That, of course, uh, was an especially important part of your life back in earlier days. And um, they would play these games obsessively at Halloween to try and figure out who they might be marrying. And some of the games are really strange. Some of them would involve, um, like, going out to the barn and throwing handfuls of 
uh, seed around and invoking the name of the devil and so forth. And supposedly somehow this would reveal to you the name of your future uh, spouse. In the meantime, what would other people, what would, you know, already married adults be doing? Would, would they do something else for Halloween or is it just for these young adults? It was, well, it was mainly for the young adults, but the older people might be around at the parties. And of course, they would have the, the food and the, the drink and they would have music. Um, I even read one delightful, I think, 18th century account from uh, Scotland of they would bring in the piper and they would actually take the doors off of their house, lay those doors down on the floor and dance on those doors. <laughs> What's the impetus, do you think, for, for for Halloween? I guess part of it's an excuse. We'll, we'll find any excuse to have a holiday. Uh, sure, there's that. And then, like I said, there is that. You just can't shake that old association with Samhain, especially in the Gaelic countries. Um, so it goes back many centuries for them as a celebration. Now, when it came to the New World, there were some innovations. Uh, we, we think, I guess, you know, we're in America. We think this is, everybody does trick-or-treat or, or things like that. You're saying some of these innovations were were made in America. Yeah, uh, trick-or-treat is the big one. People, you often will hear things like, oh, trick-or-treat was practiced by ancient Celtic druids who put on masks and went from house to house. No, we have absolutely no proof of anything like that. Um, trick-or-treat is pretty recent. Um, what trick-or-treat was about was buying off destructive pranksters, because up until about 1930, from around the mid-19th century to about 1930, um, Halloween was celebrated by a lot of young boys who liked to go out on the night and play pranks. And this was something that some of the Irish immigrants especially had brought over with them in the 1840s. And it was pretty innocent in Ireland, and it was very innocent in America up until the turn of the 20th century. And then as it kind of moved into the cities, it got to be basically it turned from pranking to vandalism. And kids were destroying light fixtures and tripping pedestrians and setting fires, and it was causing cities so much damage that they were considering banning Halloween. And fortunately, somebody was smart enough to say, you know what, that's not going to work. So let's try to buy these kids off. And they came up with these ideas of costumes and parties and the kids going house to house. And that's where we got trick or treat from. And that's why you say trick or treat. Yeah, so we've lost that. I think, you know, yeah. a lot of us won't know what that phrase even means. Uh, and you're, you're saying that this then led to costumes and such that, that that's how it morphed into, you know, the cute children in the costumes and you give out candy. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, trick-or-treating as a kid, and, and I think once or twice it occurred to me, why am I saying this? I mean, if they said play a trick, what am I going to do? Um, but, yeah, it was really a way to buy off these pranksters. And, yes, the, the costuming aspect really exploded in the 1950s, um, as did the candy aspect, because before that you were expected to uh, invite these kids into your house and give them homemade things like donuts and popcorn. Um, and, of course, it was far easier for homeowners to just buy some pre-made candy and dole that out. And so the candy manufacturers got into it in a big way in the 50s, and so did the costume manufacturers. Now, uh, some people decry this, but a, a lot of things in America, it's going to become commercialized, and then it's going to become exported. Halloween's been, been a very heavily commercialized and very popular export, hasn't it, around the world? 
Oh, it sure has. Um, and one of the things, one of the funny things that has exported it around the world is uh, the American sitcom. Um, our sitcoms are very popular all over the world. And, of course, virtually every sitcom has featured a Halloween episode. So a lot of people around the world were seeing these sitcoms and these Halloween things and thinking, hey, you know, that kind of looks fun. Um, and it was one of the ways that Halloween got introduced to a lot of places around the world. Let me back up just briefly. Uh, so the, the commercial, uh, commercialized aspect of it, when did that begin? How did that? That really starts in the 1950s. Um, before that, we don't see, there, I, there were obviously a few things of, uh, you know, some candy and some masks and so forth that were sold, but it didn't really explode in terms of retailing until the 50s. And then it kind of takes another turn in the retailing in the 80s. Um, and that came about as a result of one beer company that said, you know, we're third um, in behind the other beer companies. We need a holiday that we can turn into our big um, beer sales day. And they came up with the brilliant idea of hiring Elvira, <laughs> and it paid off gigantically and made a fortune for them, and it kind of turned Halloween at that point into a more adult holiday. So Elvira, yes, I remember Elvira. I'd, I'd forgotten Elvira, but that so that was a, that was a big part of commercialization of holiday then. In the mid '80s, it was huge. Yeah. Um, tell me more about the exporting of this of this holiday uh, around the world. I know there's well, reading in your book, there's a backlash in some cases because it's perhaps supplanting. There's a fear that this will supplant native holidays. Exactly. Yeah, and. Um the French, for example, didn't take well to it at all. They have uh, officially declared Halloween dead in France um, because France really likes their celebration of All Saints Day, um, which to them is a, a really important day when families get together and they go to cemeteries and they clean the tombs and graves of their loved ones. And, and it's a sort of somber day for them that they didn't want to give up celebrating, whereas other countries um, said, hey, we can do both. We'll have the fun party the night before. We'll do the big um, sort of more serious thing the next day. But, um, yeah, the exporting of it has been interesting. The, the movies, the sitcoms, but also um, things like McDonald's have been important in that exporting. Um, a lot of those sort of fast food chains have special Halloween promotions, and they, they took those all over the world. How is... Are there any adaptations? How are people celebrating this this holiday in in places like uh, you know China or Russia or just, you know other more exotic places? It, what's interesting is that people really love the icons of Halloween as they are. Um, it's funny to me that, for example, the jack o' lantern is based on a pumpkin that originally was native to uh, America. And people love that bright orange, happy carved face all over the world. Um, I've seen it adapted into all kinds of places where you just think, do they even know what that is? But um, it seems like it has just been sort of um, beloved by places all over the world. I haven't seen anyone turning it into something completely different yet. That might still happen. But, um, for example, in some place like Japan, um, where it has become very popular, they love the costuming, the trick-or-treat aspects, and they love the things like the ghost and the jack-o'-lanterns. And even some very surprising areas. You write a brief passage in the book. You, you, uh, you learned of a, uh, 
Halloween party among the upper echelon of Saudi society. A, a very naughty party. Um, of course, it is not a, hollow, a holiday that is celebrated in um, most of the Muslim or Middle East countries, but it was. Uh, there was apparently a sort of um, underground party that was leaked via uh, diplomatic documents and so forth a few years ago, in which about 150 young Saudis got together on Halloween, put on costumes, had a big party, um, and invited a few Americans, which is why we have any record of it at all. But it is not something you're normally going to see celebrated there, at least not yet. Now, uh, I talked about the, uh, the the backlash and that there is, you hear from time to time, uh, Christian groups will decry it uh, because of this association. Some people have called it the devil's birthday, etc. Right, yeah. It did that um, Lord of Death thing from Charles Valenti has managed to survive over 200 years. And there was a book that was written, I think, in the 40s um, called Halloween Through 20 Centuries. And this book was, um, for many years, was... Kind of in, in fact, in throughout the entire middle section of the 20th century, was the only Halloween history book that a lot of people had access to, and unfortunately, it really hits that Lord of Death thing hard. And it's, I see that book referenced a lot um, by the groups that are against Halloween, and it's unfortunate because that book is completely wrong. So a lot of misinformation out there. I guess you you hope your book will be a corrective, but but these things can have a a, a long life. Of course. <laughs> Um, there. I don't know if there's still public safety fears. I know you know public officials sometimes will be worried about Halloween. Well, I, I think people have kind of gotten past the you know razor blade and the apple fear. But just for the other day, for example, um, my mom mentioned to me something about uh, I don't think it's safe to have a black cat on Halloween. That's a popular current urban legend. Um, and in reality, the shelters and the Humane Society and so forth are saying that there really is no documented evidence of black cats being in danger on Halloween. This, this notion that there are somehow satanic cults sacrificing black cats on Halloween is one more big urban legend. Um, obviously, trick-or-treat took a pretty big blow from the notions of poison candy and kids getting razor blades and apples and so forth. And it's one of the reasons that in a lot of areas, trick-or-treat is now celebrated in sort of institutionalized ways. You now take the kids to a mall or to a zoo or something like that. Or, or trunk-or-treat is, is popular in Utah. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. This has expanded uh, in my day, uh, you know, back a few decades. It pretty much was just for children. Nowadays, everybody gets involved. Right, yeah. I I actually think that may be the baby boomers saying, we love this holiday and we don't want to give it up. Um, the I think of the 50s and 60s as being sort of the golden age of trick-or-treat. And I think a lot of the kids who experienced that and who just absolutely loved it grew up and didn't want to give it up. So they turned more to the decorating and the uh, home haunts, which are a huge business now, and the parties and the adult costuming. And we, we see it swing away a little bit more towards the adult side as a result of that. Yeah, it just seems like more and more it's, it's you know, adult parties and, uh, and everybody gets involved. Uh, just one more thing on, on, on the backlash, and some people push back on, on this holiday and don't like it. One other reason I've heard it, it, or could imagine this is a 
very secular holiday. Many of the rest of the holidays, there's some religious component, perhaps ignored. You know, there's people people decry the commercialization of Christmas, etc. But the but the religious aspect is still there. This one is a very secular holiday. It is, yeah. I yeah, I'm occasionally puzzled by the intensity of the backlash to it. Um, it's something that is certainly worth studying on a deeper psychological level. Even I think, um, yeah, it's it's an odd phenomenon to me that I just still haven't quite completely figured out. And I suppose Halloween means different things to different people. Why they celebrate it? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, there was a book that was out, um, I think, two years ago called Halloween Nation by a really amazing author named Leslie Bannatyne. And she actually opens that book with um, interviews from dozens and dozens of people talking about what Halloween means to them, and every single answer is different. What what are some of the varieties of that? Can you give me some examples from the book or, or from what you've encountered? Yeah, well, um, you know, a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's a means of creative expression. Um, people love creating their costumes, their decorations. Um, for some people, it's um, a little bit more fearful. They like to go out and be scared. They go to the haunted attractions. They want to get scared on Halloween. Um, for some other people, it's um, a night that they can bond with their kids. Um, there's the whole, and then of course, for some people, it's it's interesting that it has now become almost a year-round thing, which is um, why her book was called Halloween Nation. She was suggesting that we have a an actual subculture in this country that celebrates Halloween all year round. So for those people, it's almost um, you know their their big. Um, celebration of the year. We're talking with Lisa Morton, Halloween expert and author of Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. Happy Halloween to you, and uh, we uh, hope that you are you have a fun Halloween and a safe Halloween, whatever you're going to be doing. If you'd like to share your Halloween customs, we'd uh, love to hear about it. Upraxis at gmail.com. Tell us what you're going to be doing. Perhaps tell us how your celebration of Halloween has changed over the years. Upraxis at gmail.com, or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. We just have uh, about 10 or 15 minutes left in this discussion. You can uh, post on our UPR Utah Public Radio Facebook page as well. We're going to uh, talk more with Lisa Martin. We'll pick up that theme, uh, Halloween becoming a year-round uh, celebration, you might call it a subculture. Uh, that's just developing, she says, or perhaps is developing. We'll also talk about this idea of Halloween as a uh, season for exploring our fears in a controlled environment and Halloween post 9-11. That's coming up following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. It's haunting time on the Poudamaya World Music Gallery. Halloween is a time of spooky celebration, and on the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll hear songs about ghosts, spirits, and black magic. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Halloween Around the World on the next Putumayo World Music Hour.
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Happy Halloween to you. It is Halloween. We're asking you what you're going to be doing tonight, how your uh, traditions have changed perhaps over the year. This is a fast adapting holiday. And uh, what is your custom or tradition? You can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495, or post to our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. We had a caller who didn't want to go on the air who, uh, hopefully I can remember this correctly, um, They, with their family gets together and watches the 1949 animated version of Sle- Disney version of Sleepy Hollow. So that is their tradition. Uh, share your tradition with us. We have Lisa Morton with us, who is author of Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. Lisa Morton, it's very interesting. You talk about how Halloween is a season where we can explore our fears in a controlled environment. Maybe talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's, of course, um, you know, the prime time for the release of horror movies, um, and for the haunted um, houses that are now a huge business in this country, they're kind of new. We didn't really see that haunted attractions um, phenomenon happening until about the 90s, and now it's a billion-dollar-a-year industry. Uh, we obviously love to be scared. What's great about a movie or a haunted house is you can go through it, and you know deep down inside that you're safe, um, that nothing is going to happen to you, but it's going to be a fun experience. It's going to make your heart pound a little bit more, um, and you're going to come out on the other end laughing, and you've had a good time, and I think it's a it's a really fun thing. Um, what's funny to me is that some of these haunted attractions are now actually trying to go year-round, and uh, they aren't encountering a lot of success with that. I think people like having that specifically related to the one holiday. Do you think this is turning into a subculture? It, yeah, I think there's probably um, a, a good argument to be made for that. We see Halloween spilling over into everything from, for example, tattoos to music. Um, there's even been su- some suggestion that the rise of uh, paranormal reality shows may be linked to Halloween. Um, it certainly is spilling over into things like the haunted attractions business. There are people who are now making their living year-round from um, specifically haunted attractions. And, uh, it's yeah, it's an interesting thing that seems to be growing every year. But you're saying uh, perhaps that this industry hasn't quite caught on. The people like to sort of confine it to around Halloween? I, you know, I don't know. It's there are some uh, haunted attractions that are now having a, sort of a limited success with other holidays. We have one here in Southern California that, for example, actually does a Christmas haunted house, um, and I think they have also done like a Valentine's Day um, things like that. They, I have heard rumors that some are trying to go year-round. I don't know that any of those have been hugely successful yet. So it does seem like we like to have it related to Halloween. I think it's like, you know, if you wanted to put up a Christmas tree all year-round, it, it probably wouldn't be a good idea. Talking about uh, exploring our fears in a controlled environment, uh, talk a little bit about uh, post-9-11 and, and Halloween. Well, yeah, 9-11 was interesting because, of course, it happened such a short time before Halloween. And uh, there were a lot of people who thought that it would really damage Halloween, that um, no one would want to celebrate Halloween that year. And in 
if anything, the exact reverse happened. Um, kids wanted to dress up as firefighters and policemen. People wanted to honor that, which is fantastic. And it was very big that year and has grown ever since. Um, trick-or-treat actually had been kind of backsliding a little bit before that, and that seemed to sort of reinvigorate it. Um, it gave, you know, a lot of kids, like I said, wanted to be heroes, wanted to honor all of those people, and um, it really brought it back in some ways. Hmm. We have an email from Steve. Here's what Steve says. It may be celebrated today in principally a secular way, but Halloween's roots or routes are purely religious, are they not? It derives from and coincides with All Souls and All Saints Day, thus its association with spirits and ghosts. And the name itself comes from the word hallow, which means holy as in hallowed ground. By the way, he says, I was in Paris many years ago in very early November and was surprised to see that the French were just then beginning to take up Halloween as a celebration. That's uh, Steve. So and under- unfortunately, he was he was probably there prior to about 2004, which is, they it had a brief uh, period of interest in France, and by 2000, and I think it was 2004, the major French papers had all said, we don't do this anymore. And it, has it been stamped out successfully? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> mm, interesting, yeah, the, the power of, uh, I guess, the, the popular press. Um, by the way, to, to and we've covered uh, part of this, uh, Steve's point, but uh, it's maybe celebrated today in a particularly secular way, but he reminds us that, uh, that its roots are, are religious, some of the roots. Of course. Yeah. Um, I, what if you talk about the effect of the recession, the Great Recession on Halloween? Yeah, that's that's another thing that's funny that uh, people were predicting with the recession that um, Halloween would Halloween spending, retailing, and so forth would take a huge hit. Uh, it didn't. It took a hit, but not as big as most areas of retailing. Um, and in fact, it's for the I think about the last three years it has had its biggest years ever. So it seems to be immune to a lot of these sort of um, economic and cultural forces. Hmm. And you also write, you, you quote some research, very interesting research, that uh, perhaps our, our fears and insecurities rise if there's a Republican in the White House. Uh, so there's that cycle, and Halloween is connected. And we've seen that in horror films, too. There's there's definitely a cycle to horror films that seems to be related to which party is in power at the time. Yeah, so so maybe our fears subside a little bit with the current administration. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why this, this but, but uh, political scientists have, uh, you know, sociologists have noted this. Uh, I wonder if you talk a little bit about uh, Dile de los Muertos, uh, the, the Day of the Dead. This is uh, somewhat related. Yeah, and I'm I'm thrilled you brought that up because I I love talking about it. I think it's a fabulous um, holiday, and it is it has an odd relationship to Halloween. To me, it's what Halloween would be without the Celtic influence. Um, Dia de los Muertos came about when the Catholics moved into um, specifically Mexico and a few other areas of Latin America, and they combined uh, earlier Aztec and Mayan holidays with All Saints and All Souls Day. And we get this sort of interesting parallel holiday. It's like Halloween in some aspects and completely unlike it in many others. Um, It is much more of a sort of sober uh, look at death. Um, It really is about honoring uh, our loved ones who have passed on. Um, they there are little 
there are things like a, a something called an ofrenda, which is a sort of altar built in memory of a loved one, and it includes things like pictures of them and their favorite foods and so forth. That's a big part of Dia de los Muertos. And, of course, the skull imagery that's so famous is a big part of it. And, again, we do see that sort of attempt to mock or to um, sort of tease death with Dia de los Muertos. Um, I think the most famous image is what... Uh, the one known as La Katrina, which is the very wealthy woman who is wearing a fancy hat, but she's nothing but a skull now. Hmm. And you mentioned the word somber. Um, the, the Halloween definitely went a different direction. It's, it's I don't know, it's, it's more a sense of fun, camp in some areas. Campiness. Absolutely, yeah. You won't find, uh, in a very traditional, at least, Dia de los Muertos celebration, you won't find an emphasis on kids, on parties, on um, the sort of wild side of things. Um, it is a little bit more like All Saints Day. It's celebrated with visits to graveyards and uh, cleaning the tombs and the grave sites and so forth. And then there's also a lot of home celebration with it, with the building, the altars, and putting out the special foods and so forth. Um, it's starting, there have been a few little sort of incursions of Halloween into the Latin American celebration. It's met with pretty mixed success. Um, a lot of the sort of um, religious leaders, especially in Latin America, like their celebration of Dia de los Muertos. And um, there's a little bit of the trick-or-treat going on for the kids, but not a huge in kind of takeover yet by Halloween. We just have a couple of minutes left. I wonder if you talk a bit about uh, the Halloween in popular culture. There's been a real strain of Halloween, and that is in part how this is spread around the world. What uh, maybe a highlight or two from 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 that idea, from that chapter on popular culture? Yeah, I, well, I, absolutely John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, I don't know that there has ever been a movie that's been as influential on a holiday as that one. I think it really cemented the holiday's transition to something for adults in the late 70s. Um, and more recently, Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas, of course, is huge and has um, created new icons for the holiday. Um, and then one that just came out a few years ago that a lot of people may not know about and is a real little gem is uh, something called Trick or Treat um, by a filmmaker named Michael Doherty. And, and if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. It's a really fun film that kind of incorporates all the major Halloween themes and images. Trick or Treat by Michael Doherty. Right. Okay. And again, tell us what you're going to be doing tonight. Uh, I am going to go out. Like I said, I'm going to look at a lot of our local um, yard displays and yard haunts. We have these things here that include everything from projections to animated figures to the more traditional pumpkins and graveyards and so forth. I just love going to these things and photographing them. And if you'd like to see a picture of the Headless Horseman, that's a nice tradition that's uh, sprung up here in Cache Valley, you can go to our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. You can still share your customs and traditions. Still love to hear about those. Post on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page or email us to upraxcess at gmail.com. Lisa Martin, thanks so much. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And again, happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. Lisa Morton, author of Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. If you'd like to learn more about her, lisamorton.com is the place to go. Tomorrow, of course, it's Science Questions with Sherry Quinn. Hope you'll join us then. And for producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. 
These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. My name is Arthur Hammond. I'm 64. Today is June 1st, 2013 in St. George, Utah. My name is Alma Hammond. I'm 59. It's June 1st, 2013. Location is St. George, Utah. And I'm a brother to Arthur. I was born in 1948. My mother was in hiding. Therefore, I was born at my uncle's place. My mother was in hiding because she was a plural wife. And plural marriage is against the law. And that was part of our childhood. Uh, we lived under the threat. Our parents lived under the threat of, the, of arrest, which made it imperative to protect our parents. And so if you went to school, you couldn't say who your father was. I went to school uh, at a place where others of my brothers and sisters went to school, but because some of them were brothers and sisters from a different mother, you couldn't acknowledge them as such. I think we moved to Highland Drive in the spring of 53, and at Highland Drive, neighbors were much closer, and so we had to be more careful. In the summer of 53, they had a raid on what was called Short Creek then, and some of our people were taken to Phoenix under arrest, and the state of Utah started gearing up to have their own raid. Things came to a boiling point, and I came home one day. The car was packed. I don't know if anybody knew that we were going to go anywhere that morning, but Dad had got word that there was a warrant out, and they were going to arrest Mother and him, and he got to busy and got Mother and the kids bundled up, and we spent a week in hiding out in, in motels, and then we went to Albuquerque and spent the Christmas holiday with Aunt Frances and Annie Baum and their families, and it was quite something when we got down to Colorado City that you could begin to drop that facade and actually be yourself and recognize your brothers and sisters, recognize your parents. Dad saw that it was going to be necessary if we wanted to take and have the young people buy in and be viable, active, productive members, they were going to have to have an education. And so they got the brother and dad and brother got together and they started private high school that they called the Colorado City Academy. The academy in a large way became to a certain degree the social center because so many yeah. of the kids of the community centered there. and Made a venue for a lot of different Direct, but we had socials or dances, community dances. Yeah. Uh, they were about at least once a month and sometimes two times two a month. Two times a month, a lot uh, of times. We had theatrical programs. We had musical programs. We had celebrations uh, on the holidays. Uh, hay rides. Yeah. At the beginning of the school year, we'd have a hay ride and party, and we'd go up the canyon. And in the f spring... It, just before school let out, we'd have another one. Uh, it really created a sense of community, of closeness, and those things were great. It's all evaporated now, but it doesn't make yeah. it any less memorable to us in regards to those things. Let me say this. One thing that the Academy did is it became focal point not only for Colorado City, but for Salt Lake and for Canada and the people, the people that, we had, up that there. we had there because all of a sudden people realized that they could send their children to a school 
that would protect them instead of trying to tear them down. And so many families that were in Salt Lake began to build a second home in Colorado City and send part of their family down there and send their high school-aged children so that they could attend school at the academy. And, and what's amazing to me is how far-flung academy students have gone and how well they've done. Yeah, very much so. Uh, yeah, many of them came and stayed with other families. Uh, yeah. I know my wife's family had many people, and other people had uh, other other families, and they were gathering in, and they were gathering their young people, and they would just come and move in there. And yeah, they people would. from Canada and Salt Lake, I remember, remember many of them coming down, right. and, and their influence, they were, they were kind of a... A new thing in the community, so they they, they kind of made a splash for a little while, and and it was it was fun to watch that. The, the newest barbarian, <laughs> right? Yeah, we, <laughs> we had, had our turn at being that, but uh, yeah, that school had a great impact, and it continues because yeah. we want that for our kids, and we try to reproduce it in our own way. But uh, the community at that time went through a real renaissance. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread, located at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD 1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD 1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD 1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD 1, 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD 1, 91.5 Logan. Thank you for listening today. Stay tuned for the Zesty Garden up next. While winter is just around the corner, it's not too late to begin planning for next spring. There's also still time to take care of fall garden tasks so that you're prepared for whatever old man winter has to throw at you. Today on the Zesty Garden, certified arborist Preston Culver from Utah State University's Facilities Department